Good evening. Thanks for joining us tonight. On Tuesday, the foreperson of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, the one investigating Donald Trump and his efforts to subvert the 2020 election, she came forward with a bunch of unusual and unconventional comments and intriguing bits of information, like the fact that the special grand jury, impaneled by the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, they had recommended over a dozen indictments. The foreperson, a woman named Emily Kors, made a splash. And she sparked a debate within the legal community about her potential impropriety. But today we heard from the Georgia judge who oversaw that special grand jury, Judge Robert McBurney. And here is what he had to say on the matter. Those grand jurors, including the forewoman, can share some details about their experience. In an interview today with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Judge McBurney said they cannot discuss their deliberations. But if an assistant DA or a witness is in the grand jury room, he told the paper, they can talk about what happened. That's not deliberations. That's presentation. And they're not prohibited from talking about that, nor are they prohibited from talking about the fruit of their deliberations, which would be the final report. So Judge McBurney essentially communicated that what Emily Kaur said did not compromise the special grand jury's work. And yet... To precisely no one's surprise, Donald Trump and his lawyers are not letting that stop them. The former president called the Georgia case, quote, the greatest witch hunt of all time and the process a, quote, illegal kangaroo court. His lawyers called the four women's comments, quote, truly shocking. In a statement today, Trump's team said Core's so-called media tour, quote, may have been surprising to some because of its unprecedented nature, but in reality was emblematic of the deeply flawed process. Now, the Fulton County District Attorney herself has said in recent weeks that charging decisions are imminent, which means that Trump and his lawyers can protest all they would like about the special grand jury four person speaking out. But it does not mean Trump's legal troubles are going away. And in addition to the Fulton County investigation, today brought more word that Justice Department special counsel Jack Smith has been very, very busy in his sprawling criminal inquiry into the events surrounding January 6th. First, members of the special counsel team were in court today arguing for access to Pennsylvania Republican Congressman Scott Perry's phone records. This comes after investigators seized the congressman's cell phone over the summer. Now, remember, it was Scott Perry who tried to get the Trump administration to install election denier Jeffrey Clark as acting attorney general in the final weeks of the Trump administration. He also pushed the Trump administration to investigate the truly wild election fraud conspiracy, which involved Italian defense contractors using military satellites to somehow flip votes from Trump to Biden. So that is the man whose cell phone the Justice Department wants access to. That is why they were in federal court today. But that is not all the Justice Department has been up to in its massive January 6th probe. It has been exactly two weeks since we learned that the DOJ subpoenaed former Vice President Mike Pence for his testimony. And it's been just one week since we learned that Jack Smith's team reportedly subpoenaed former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And just last night, The New York Times was the first to report that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, they too were subpoenaed by Jack Smith. Now, about that Mike Pence subpoena, subpoena, the former vice president said last week that the subpoena was, quote, unconstitutional and unprecedented. And today, CBS News is reporting that the special counsel and his team are going to court 
to try and enforce that subpoena. Here's the lead. Federal prosecutors have asked the chief judge in Washington, D.C.'s federal court to compel the former vice president to comply with a grand jury subpoena and testify as a witness in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into the events surrounding the January 6th attack on the Capitol. That is according to three people familiar with the investigation. The motion to compel testimony asks the court to uphold the subpoena's legal authority and indicates the Justice Department prosecutors are moving quickly in their attempt to get Pence before a grand jury. When it rains, it pours. Joining us now are Michael Schmidt, Washington correspondent for The New York Times, one of the reporters who broke the news that the Justice Department special counsel subpoenaed Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, and of course, author of Donald Trump versus the United States Inside the Struggle to Stop a President, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and co-host of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. Joyce, Michael, thank you both for joining me this evening. Michael, I want to start with you. You broke the news yesterday about for lack of a better term, Javanka. Um, what are you, I mean, how are you reading uh, the special counsel's actions in, the, in recent weeks? I mean, I think the sort of biggest takeaway that I had was that it really makes a difference, and this is sort of obvious, when Donald Trump is not president, the way an investigation unfurls. And you didn't see moves this, you know, aggressive. Some people wouldn't say it's that aggressive, but to this degree, subpoenaing a member of Trump's true inner circle yeah. and family members during, say, the Mueller investigation, where they got to come in, they didn't have to go before a grand jury. It was sort of less formal and less likely to be publicized. In this case, Jared Kushner and Ivanka will go into a grand jury room without their lawyers. They will be there just with the prosecutors and the grand jurors. And on top of that, they already have established testimony exactly. that they cannot deviate off of based on the congressional investigation that they already cooperated with, that Donald Trump allowed them to cooperate with or didn't try and stand in the way of them talking to investigators. So it's a different situation. There's more potential things that could go wrong. It, it, it's more serious. Obviously, it's serious when you come in and are interviewed by anyone in an investigation. But it just shows that that they don't really care. And it makes you <laughs> He's wonder, not president anymore. And it makes you wonder how much the Mueller team did care and other investigations that went on at the Justice Department, the Michael Cohen investigation in SDNY, other things that came up. Were they, would they certainly acted differently then than they did now? And to me, that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, Joyce, I mean, it's hard to exert executive privilege if you're not the chief executive anymore. I mean, Joe Biden's not going to exert executive privilege here. So, I mean, where do you see the legal argument going here, given the pen subpoena, Jared and Ivanka, Mark Meadows? So the first thing it's important to understand about privileges is that just because there's a privilege that covers, for instance, people who are the president of the Senate, let's say theoretically, um, that that exists, it doesn't cover everything that that person does. Just because you have that status doesn't mean, for instance, that you could go off and plan a murder and not have to testify about it. And so I think the first hurdle that all of these folks will, will face is showing that the conversations that Jack Smith wants to have them testify about, the acts that he wants to have them testify about, 
are things that are covered by the privilege. The time has come and gone for executive privilege. For one thing, both Jared and Ivanka have already testified before the January 6th committee. It's not perhaps a full waiver, but it's something close to it. And executive privilege appears to have already been litigated in the D.C. courts with many people who were from Trump's inner circle, from Pence's inner circle, already testifying. So I think Jack Smith will win these battles. The interesting question is, is he issuing this um, in, entire rash of subpoenas because he's ready, he's end stage, he needs the final witnesses, or is he doing it now knowing that there may be court battles that will take a little bit of time and he wants to set those up so that a few months down the road when he's ready, the legal issues have been sorted out. I think that's an interesting sort yeah, of question that we don't do you know have the a, answer to. Joyce, do you have a theory on that? Because traditionally the big fish come later in the in the season, if you will. You're not going for really the innermost inner circle at this stage of the game. But from all outside assessments, this seems like the beginning of the DOJ's, you know, the the most muscular part of the investigation. This is such a hard one to call, Alex, because for one thing, you do have some of these folks' testimony already transcribed by the January 6th committee available to federal prosecutors. So maybe in that sense, they're more comfortable talking to them. But I think that you're dead on the money. These are late stage witnesses. And for instance, with Jared and Ivanka both, Perhaps they give prosecutors evidence that Donald Trump had this specific intent to interfere with the certification of the vote. But, but you know, they already have that from other sources. There is a lot of different testimony and circumstantial evidence that suggests that Trump had that intent, which is an essential element of proving a conspiracy to obstruct a federal proceeding The reason that you have to talk to Jared and Ivanka is you have to know if they're going to say anything that hurts you. Did they have an excuse? Do they have a story about why the former president didn't really intend to interfere? You've got to lock them down under oath. And as a prosecutor, I don't really want to do that until I know what everyone else is going to say so I can run out all of the possibilities with their testimony and have them locked in under oath at risk of perjury if they deviate in a criminal trial. Michael, the fact that Jared and Ivanka testified to the January 6th committee in retrospect, I mean, there were there were sort of signal moments in the hearing and where that tape was played of Ivanka basically saying Bill Barr was right. There was no fraud in the 2020 election. But beyond that, I mean, their testimony didn't make that much. And then that was significant. But it wasn't like a Cassidy Hutchinson moment. Do we have any understanding about why they were allowed to testify, why Trump sort of gave in to his family members testifying, given the fact that Meadows and Pence didn't get anywhere near the committee? It's sort of one of the mysteries of the post-Trump era, where Jared and Ivanka stand in Trump's world and why it was that they they did testify. And are they trying to put distance between themselves and the former president or are they not? There was this whole back and forth about, you know, uh, these reports that they weren't going to be part of the campaign. And then Trump came out and put a statement out or a truth social post out about it. So it's not clear really where they stand and how much loyalty they still have mm-hmm. to the former president and how that could manifest or may have manifested itself in some of in, in, in these different things. To your point, I don't think that they're that great of witnesses if you're trying to get to charges. I'm not exactly sure that they really changed the game. But what 
what Joyce is saying is that you need to know whether there's something that Trump said that could really undercut the investigation. Because if you were to go to trial, you would you would find out at some point what that is, and the jury certainly would. So you need to assess that and say, well, okay, if Trump did say this behind closed doors and it does hurt the case, we need to know right. that. Right. They're beta testing, basically, their argument with Jared and Ivanka if they don't get anything else from them. The, the mere fact, though, that there is testimony that they have given that they now need to basically abide with the DOJ just creates a series of problems you would think they much would have much rather have avoided. And I mean, not that anybody can rewind time here, but if they could, they would not want to have testified in front of the committee, given the situation that now places them in. I do want to ask you both about the Fulton County uh, debate that's happening in terms of Emily Kors's media tour. And, and Joyce, I'll start with you in terms of your assessment about how far Trump and his legal team can ride out the assertion that this was an illegal kangaroo court not to be confused with a legal kangaroo court. Look, this argument is going absolutely nowhere for Trump. That doesn't mean he won't raise it. We'll see it in the form of a motion to dismiss if he's indicted. We'll see it as an issue on appeal. But here's why it doesn't have any teeth. This is the foreperson of the investigative grand jury. They will not play a role in indicting the former president. There will not be any taint as a result of anything she has said or has not said. So while it sort of chills my prosecutor soul to the core to see the foreperson of an investigative grand jury outdoing these interviews before any charges have been filed, Ultimately, this is just a flash in, in the pan, and legally, it will not amount to anything. Trump will make all sorts of arguments about tainted jury pools and why he can't get a fair trial. And this won't be the most significant evidence in those motions. He'll talk about nationwide publicity for years. Um, that'll be a mess that the trial judge, if there is a trial, will have to resolve. But ultimately, the, the four person herself, her identity is very interesting. This is a woman who didn't vote in 2020. She never saw the tape of Trump and or heard the tape of Trump and Raffensperger before it was played in the grand jury room. This suggests that there are objective jurors out there who don't know the facts, who haven't been following these issues like we all have been, and that they will, if they try a case involving the former president and others in Georgia, be able to conduct a fair trial. Well, you can bet, um, you know, I agree with you, Joyce, that Trump is going to get as much mileage out of this as possible. And, Michael, one of the things that his lawyers seem to be focused on is this idea, and I'm, I, I have to call it this because it is what it is, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles popsicle incident. She talks about this popsicle that she is holding in one hand as she swears someone in as the forewoman of the jury, and that she got this popsicle from an ice cream social with the prosecutor's office. And they are pointing to that as evidence of a too cozy and inappropriate relationship with the jury and with Fonnie Willis's office. Um, how much do you think in all of this, the court of public opinion, as far as what Trump is going to say, will ultimately matter? You're a student of Trump and of Trump's followers to some degree. And, and how, how meaningful is this, this assertion that he's going to make? So I, I think that there's something significant here in that Sure, there are legal, enormous legal questions, and this, this matter will be decided in the court. But when you're taking the extraordinary decision 
of charging a former president. There is a public facing aspect to it that's probably more important in the Justice Department sense, but I think still exists here. And you have to, as a prosecutor, even if you're a local prosecutor, be able to make the argument to the average American and say, look, I have taken this extraordinary decision because I think it's incredibly important and the evidence backs it up. And I'm not just taking a flyer here or doing something for political purposes. And when you have what happened with the foreperson come out and speak the way that she did, I don't think that's a great way to start that discussion with the public. Mm -hmm. You want to be in control of that narrative if you're the prosecutor. You want to be laying out to the people and saying, look, here is why we're heading down this path that we've never headed down before in American history. And I don't think you want that coming out of the voice of a foreperson who's sort Sort of playing different games and saying, well, I'll answer this question and maybe not that question and talking about the popsicle and all those different things. If you are going to do something we've never done in American history at a time that the country, you know, look, is divided in, in extraordinary and unusual ways, I don't think you want that to be the first person talking to the public about your case. You definitely don't want to have to say the phrase Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles popsicle in conjunction with the unprecedented historic potential criminal indictment of a former president of the United States. I will note, Emily Kors is not speaking to the press very much today or since her explosive uh, series of interviews earlier this week. Joyce Vance and Michael Schmidt, thank you both for your time and expertise tonight. Really appreciate it. We have a lot to get to tonight, like House Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We learned today just how far he was willing to go to get the speaker's gavel, plus a story out of the epicenter of election denial, and that is the great state of Arizona. A Republican who recently vacated office left behind some interesting evidence from his investigation into election fraud. That's next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Seventy percent of Republicans in Arizona think the election was stolen and fraudulent. Right. I feel like but you I understand that's f-ing crazy. You've what I've done said is said you're still investigating. We've run it. We've run a lot of the stuff to ground. And when, and and when you get it to ground, will you come out and say Donald J. Trump is wrong? The election in Arizona was fair, not stolen, and not fraudulent. I, I have always been a straight shooter, and once, no, once all the facts and evidence are in, John, John, come on, man. So why can't you say the election in 2020 
was not stolen or fraudulent. I will tell you this, as I said, this I, is blowing my is mind. That was Arizona's former attorney general, Mark Burnovich, in an interview with Jon Stewart a week before the 2022 midterms. And you can see Burnovich went out of his way not to refute Trump's claims of a stolen election. His office was even investigating those claims. At the end of that interview, Burnovich made a promise. When you're ready to release the report, when will that be? Do you know? Sooner rather than later, I hope. Great. Will you go out and, and vehemently debunk all those issues I, as I, vehemently as, as needed? Absolutely. Mr. Brnovich said that as soon as his office was done investigating, he would go out and debunk any false election fraud claims as vehemently as necessary. The only problem is that it turns out Mr. Brnovich's office had already debunked those claims months before that interview. Thanks to newly released documents from the Arizona Attorney General's office, we now know that seven months before Brnovich sat down for that interview with Jon Stewart, investigators in his office had already put together their report on election fraud, a report which the Washington Post notes found virtually all claims of error and malfeasance were unfounded. But Mark Brnovich did not release that report. Instead, he put out a much shorter report the following month, claiming his office had discovered serious vulnerabilities in the election system and left out edits from his own investigators that refuted his assertion. The newly released documents also show how Brnovich tried to undermine his own investigators' findings and how those investigators pushed back. For instance, in one draft of the report, Brnovich's office wrote, the current election system in Maricopa County involving the verification and handling of early ballots is broke. But the investigators responded, we did not uncover any criminality or fraud having been committed in this area. In that same draft, Brnovich's office also wrote that Arizona's largest voting district, Maricopa County, had been combative and litigious in response to the investigation. Investigators replied again, saying, based upon our experiences, Maricopa County was cooperative and responsive to our requests. Now, the reason we know all of this is because Arizona voters chose to elect a new attorney general, a Democrat, Chris Mays, in the midterm election. Mays' office released the documents showing what Brnovich withheld from the Arizona public. She has vowed to stop wasting taxpayer dollars on investigating conspiratorial claims about voter fraud and instead focus on issues including protecting the right to vote and preventing threats against election workers. Joining us now is Arizona Democratic Attorney General Chris Mays. Madam Attorney General, thank you for joining us. Could you please divulge how you found these documents? Were they in a shoebox, in a storage closet, or where were they? <laughs> Hi, Alex. Well, it's, it's great to be with you. They were not in a shoebox. Um, it did take some time to find these documents. You know, we obviously, like uh, much of the country, wanted to, to know whether that final report uh, by my predecessor had ever been prepared. So we went through a process of, of looking internally in our systems at the attorney general's office, speaking with our uh, in amazing investigators. 
investigators. I must say I'm very proud of the job that our agents and investigators did on the investigation. The, un- the unfortunate part, as you noted, is that my predecessor, Mark Brnovich, uh, uh, failed to and chose not to put out their good work that debunked all these conspiracy theories that proved that we have fair and free and secure elections in the state of Arizona, totally clearing Maricopa County officials of any wrongdoing. Um, that information, those three reports that you talked about, um, should have been released before the 2022 election. The people of Arizona had a right to know that information, and the people of this country had a right to know that information. I know these the investigators that you talked about spent 10,000 hours working on this. Do you have any idea how much this these hidden investigations cost the people of Arizona? I mean, it, it seems like it was a good thing that they investigated it and found what they did, but the fact that uh, the attorney general at the time, Brnovich, buried them seems like a, a colossal waste of taxpayer dollars. It was it was a terrible waste of taxpayer t- dollars. We we haven't been able to put an exact dollar figure on those ten thousand man and woman hours, but I will tell you this: it was a it, you know it it distracted the attorney general's office from fighting real crime and real fraud. And here's what I think is the truly um, sad and terrible about this situation is that. You know, these reports were sitting there. They were ready to be released. They should have been released. And at that very same time, as you know, elections officials in Arizona were being uh, threatened. They were being harassed. They were uh, the subject of death threats. We had county officials who were the subject of death threats. And we had an attorney general in the form of my predecessor who could have poured cold water on all these conspiracy theories and maybe have put an end to some of those threats and harassment. And, you know, going forward, what I want to do is protect our elections officials, protect democracy, obviously, and protect voting rights in the state of Arizona. Do you have a theory? I mean, you've rightly point out that this wasn't just about the paper. This was about people, about the lives of human beings that were under threat. Do you have a theory about why he wouldn't come clean about what his investigators found? You know, I just don't, I just don't know. And I, I guess I've got to leave that up to, to everybody to, to, to decide. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, my predecessor will have to answer those questions for himself. Um, but it was certainly a disservice to not just the state of Arizona, to the voters of Arizona, but also to the voters of this country. You know, we, we have, fantastically run elections in the state of Arizona. And that information should have been made available to all the people of this state. And going forward, we're going to be honest and transparent uh, with the people of Arizona and this country. And this kind of thing will not happen again here. I, I know we're talking about the road forward here. So I'd love to know whether you have any plans to investigate that not one, but two sets of fake electors that tried to effectively undermine democracy and the will of the people in Arizona in the course of the 2020 election. We know there is a a robust investigation happening in Georgia. Do you envision anything similar in the state of Arizona? Yeah, and I've, I have said in the past and, and, and announced that we are going to investigate uh, the fake electors. I think that uh, I, what I'm going to take very seriously going forward and looking backward is any attempt 
to systemically undermine American democracy and democracy in the state of Arizona. And so I've said that we're going to we're going to do that investigation. The other thing that I'm going to do is repurpose the elections investigation uh, unit, the, the election integrity unit, excuse me, um, and, and, you know, make it a, a, a unit that is designed to protect voting rights in Arizona and a unit that will protect elections officials against these death threats. And I've been very clear uh, that I will prosecute anyone who engages in death threats against elections officials in the state of Arizona, because our democracy depends, absolutely depends on having good people come forward and be willing uh, to be elections officials and and carry out our elections in the in the state of Arizona. Well, we are very much looking forward to your findings about the two sets of fake electors in Arizona, given where this country is at in the election we are headed towards in 2024. Arizona Democratic Attorney General Chris Mays, thank you so much for your time tonight. Happy hunting in the rest of Mark Burnovich's office. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. We have much more ahead tonight, including a Colorado judge ruling that the Club Q shooter, who reportedly ran a neo-Nazi website, can be tried on hate crime charges, while authorities warn communities to be extra vigilant this weekend. Plus, House Speaker McCarthy, what he gave up in order to gain power. It's a long list. That's coming up next. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is, is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it? Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. After first letting his fundraising mailer do the talking, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now speaking up to defend his decision to hand over more than 40,000 hours of Capitol surveillance footage to Fox's Tucker Carlson. McCarthy explained to The New York Times on Wednesday that he released the footage because he promised and said the tapes belong to the American public. I think sunshine lets everybody make their own judgment. Releasing this footage to the American public is not the same as releasing it to Tucker Carlson, but I digress. The promise McCarthy is referring to is actually one of the concessions he agreed to last month in a deal with a group of far-right Republicans, people who stood between him and the House Speaker's gavel. The holdouts were led by Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who, after the first few rounds of votes, went on Fox and was not shy about how he felt about Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy has been in the leadership for 14 years, and he has sold shares of himself to special interests, to political action committees. And so that's why I don't think he is an appropriate choice. 
It took two more excruciating days of votes, time that, by the way, none of us will ever get back, and several rounds of promises to convince Matt, convince Matt Gates and his gang to budge. Many of these promises that McCarthy made had long been on the right-wing wish list, kicking Congresswoman Ilhan Omar off the Foreign Affairs Committee as political payback for the previous demotions of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar creating a partisan committee to investigate the so-called weaponization of the federal government, and doling out plum assignments, including seats on the House Rules Committee. And it worked. Kevin McCarthy gave the MAGA wing of the party enough to win the speaker's gavel, if you can call it a win. And Matt Gates was delighted. Bravo, Speaker McCarthy. This was not an agreement that we had at the beginning of last week, but as the week progressed, Speaker McCarthy, to his great credit, understood this was important to a great many of us. So Speaker McCarthy is now delivering bigly for the MAGA wing of his party, even if it's bad for Congress and even if it's bad for democracy and maybe even if it's bad for Kevin McCarthy, because as he said himself, he promised. And Kevin McCarthy is a man of his word. You know, except for the time he said that Trump bore responsibility for the deadly attack on the Capitol and then turned right around and instead pledged fealty to Trump down at Mar-a-Lago. And also that time he told Liz Cheney he would talk to Trump about resigning and then never did. And that time he told his House colleagues that he thought Trump was on Vladimir Putin's payroll before claiming it was just a bad attempt at a joke. Other than that, he is totally trustworthy. Now, if you are wondering whether you will get to see that January 6th security footage without Tucker Carlson's edits, the answer is maybe. Speaker McCarthy tells The New York Times that he plans to make the footage more widely available after Tucker Carlson airs his version of this footage first, because he gave it to Tucker first and, well, he is a man of his word. Okay, we have a lot more to get to tonight. if If it feels... Like more and more people are saying the quiet part out loud, being more overtly racist and anti-Semitic, you are not wrong. We will talk about it with someone who's tracking some very scary stuff. And then later, why did college students all over Florida walk out of class today? Here's a hint, it's all about Ron DeSantis. Stay with us. Do you remember when Brandy Zed Drozny told you several hundred times that the accused shooter, Anderson Lee Aldrich, was inspired by hatred for the non-binary community that he learned on this show? Do you remember that? Well, actually, it turns out, we discovered last night, that Anderson Lee Aldrich is, drumroll please, part of the non-binary community. That was Tucker Carlson, just days after five people were killed and 17 were injured at an LGBTQ nightclub called Club Q in Colorado Springs in November. When the news broke that the accused shooter, Anderson Aldrich, identified as non-binary, conservative media had a field day. They used that detail about Aldrich's identity as a way to deflect attention from the idea that anti-LGBTQ hatred could have been part of the motive here. That kind of spin may work in the court of public opinion, but today in actual court, in a Colorado Springs court, the judge overseeing Aldrich's case ruled that there is in fact sufficient evidence for Aldrich to be tried on hate crime charges. Yesterday, a detective involved in Aldrich's case detailed how not only do the authorities believe Aldrich ran a neo-Nazi website that hosted content like a neo-Nazi white supremacist shooting training video, But Aldrich also used gay slurs and posted an image online of a rifle scope trained on a gay pride parade. 
The fact of the matter is sometimes hate speech does inspire hate crimes, and we are currently living in a world filled with hate speech. Jewish hate messages littered across Nashville this weekend. Several neighborhoods say they found the flyers in their mailboxes and their driveway. If you feel like you have heard that story before, it is because you have. This past weekend, neighborhoods in Houston, Texas, Eugene, Oregon, Daytona Beach, Florida, Norfolk, Virginia, and Nashville, Tennessee all had anti-Semitic flyer drops. Organized acts of hate like this appear to be happening with increasing regularity. This weekend, Chicago police are urging Jewish and other religious communities to be extra vigilant because a neo-Nazi group has declared Saturday as a, quote, day of hate. They are encouraging their members and like-minded individuals to engage in anti-Semitic acts of vandalism, like flyering and posting about it online, to grow their following. And all this comes just one week after a suspect in Los Angeles was arrested for shooting two Jewish men as they left religious services. Now, the police have a laundry list of really disgusting anti-Semitic messages that this alleged shooter sent in the years leading up to that attack. I am not going to repeat them here. But the one that is worth noting was that at one point, the suspect texted a classmate an image of this anti-Semitic flyer, one that says every single aspect of the COVID agenda is Jewish. That is the same style of anti-Semitic flyer that we saw distributed across the country just this weekend. Joining me now is Oren Siegel, vice president of the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism. Oren, thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks. So how do we make sense of this? Let's just start first with what happened and what's happening in Colorado Springs. Hate crimes. I mean, talk to me about how you define a hate crime. It, it seems confusing to people, at least in the Tucker Carlson orbit, that someone who is part of a community can also be guilty of a hate crime against that community. Right. So it's not clear to me what community he was part of other than what it appears to be an extremist community. Yeah. So somebody who's targeting somebody because of who they love, their religion, what they look like. Um, you know, these are characteristics that they can't change. When somebody's targeted because of that, that is often a hate crime. And so what we saw in Colorado Springs was just the latest in a series of mass violent attacks by those who oppose their perceived enemies for reasons that a lot of people will never understand, mm -hmm. but that we see the deadly consequences of. Yeah. And you guys have a new report out on murder and extremism in the U.S. And the results are terrifying in a word, right? The, if you look at the chart, I think we can bring it up. And you're tracking um, domestic extremist mass killings in the U.S. by decade. And there's, oh, there's 2011 to 2020, and it skyrockets. We are, of course, not done with this decade, but we're already on track with five. And it is the month of, I have to think about it for a second, February yes, yes. of 2023, far from the end of the decade. How are you processing that? I mean, what, what do you glean from this chart other than we're, we're getting worse as a society, quite obviously? In society, not only we have a gun violence problem, we have a mass killing problem, but we very specifically have an extremist mass killing problem. When you look at the last 12 years, there have been 20 26 mass killings like Buffalo, El Paso, Pittsburgh, and so on. That is more than what we saw in the previous 40 years. Wow. So A, extremism is being normalized. The narratives that animate it are in the public. They're on social media. The access to weapons by extremists is as easy as it's ever been. And frankly, I think there's a lack of accountability, both from social media companies, from our public discussion, that says this type of hate that animates violence is okay in some way. 
Why do you think, I mean, how and why has it gotten normalized and what can be done about that? Because we can't, we can't live like this, right? Something has to be done to tear out extremism root and branch. And yet it feels like we're getting farther from that as opposed to closer. You know, I mean, there are so many issues, I think, in our country about exposure to hate without friction, right? The lack of accountability when somebody engages in an insurrection or a hate crime or a violent mass killing, there's somehow a debate about that after it happens. There's no immediate reckoning or understanding of what's happening in the community. It immediately gets politicized. That does not help us in the fight against this type of hatred. I also feel like we have, there's like a pornographic, almost pornographic lust for rage. And this idea that the flyers that we were talking about, the idea that younger people, I don't actually know, that, that groups of people are going around and throwing anti-Semitic flyers into people's front yards and, uh, you know, at them in cities across this country and then trying to grow their online followers. That's right. Through the imagery of this, this anti-Semitic, these anti-Semitic acts of, of, of terror, really. What, I mean, like, what does that tell you about society and the way in which there seems to be some sick enjoyment in terms of terrorizing people? You know, we're in a selfie culture. And frankly, that culture also uh, impacts and animates the way extremists operate. So when you talk about flyers being put on uh, lawns of people's homes or banners being dropped off of freeways yes. um, or harassment of people in the street, like we saw just a couple of days ago, not too far from the studios here at a theater uh, showing a, 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 um, a play about anti-Semitism, what they're doing is not just targeting a community, they're filming it. Yeah. They're making sure that there's propaganda value. So then they when they signal back to their communities online in order to keep people engaged. And by the way, they're also getting cryptocurrency and other money in order to continue to do this type of harassment. Extremism, anti-Semitism and bigotry today is frankly a form of entertainment. Wow. And they have ways to make sure that people are constantly engaged. And that's why. This is such a serious threat. That's why not only the Jewish community, the LGBTQ community and others feel vulnerable yeah. because accountability is far behind our ability to communicate. And there is not a far leap from throwing anti-Semitic flyers to actually engaging in physical violence. What is the day of hate that Chicago police are warning about? So a couple of weeks ago at ADL, we identified some extremists talking about wanting to, you know, choose this date tomorrow to, you know, do their flyering, their bannering, their protests, and to target the Jewish community in particular. I will just say this concept of a day of hate, when you look at the recent past, every day has been a day of hate. This has been a past couple of years of massive amounts of high levels of anti-Semitic incidents and other forms of hate. So this is in some ways not unique, but when you are following up two Jews being shot in Los Angeles, when there are these other incidents that are occurring, we don't have a luxury to just sort of downplay this as another day. We have to make sure that communities are taking every steps that they can to make sure that they're protecting themselves and law enforcement is sending people to make sure that those communities feel safe. May better days be ahead. Oren Siegel, thanks as always for your time tonight and the valuable work you're doing with the ADL. Thank you. We have one more story for you tonight as college students across Florida walked out of classes to protest Republican Governor Ron DeSantis using them as pawns in his culture war. That is just ahead. Racist, sexist, anti-gay, Ron DeSantis, go away!
These were the scenes on college campuses across Florida today. Students walked out protesting Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's policies targeting the LGBTQ community and students of color. They're pushing back on the governor's plans to ban initiatives focused on diversity and equity and to restrict courses dealing with race. The walkout was planned after Governor DeSantis asked public universities in the state to turn over the health care information of transgender students, including how many students sought or received treatment for gender dysphoria and their ages. It is unclear why he needs that information. Students who walked out of the University of South Florida in Tampa held signs that read, Protect Our Trans Siblings and Black Lives Matter. These are students at Florida International University in Miami, and you can hear them chant, let teachers teach. It wasn't just students today either. Democratic State Representative Anna Eskimani joined the demonstration at Florida State University in Tallahassee. Governor DeSantis, of course, is one of the top generals in the right-wing culture wars, declaring Florida as the state where woke goes to die. And so Florida has become ground zero for the rights attacks on education, and we've been seeing it all play out in schools like New College of Florida, which is in Sarasota. And that's where the president of the Public Liberal Arts College was recently forced out by a board of trustees full of DeSantis appointees, including right-wing activist Chris Rufo, who made a name for himself in conservative circles with his crusade against critical race theory. I will be heading down to New College to talk to students and educators as they deal with the effects of DeSantis's policies, and we will be bringing you a special report next week. That does it for us. We'll see you again tomorrow. 